November 28th, Acts 18 this morning. Now, our primary mission as a church has to be, regardless, regardless of specific language, and, and, and a lot of churches use different language to communicate this, but our primary mission as a church, it's not that it should be this, it has to be this, because this is what the Lord Jesus has commanded to his churches, and this is why we see things unfold the way they do in the book of Acts. Our primary mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who love God and who love others. So like, that's why we exist as a church, to fulfill both the great commission and the great commandment. We want to become people who glorify God through our love for him and our love for others, and then we want to replicate his image in other people as we make disciples. Now, a question as we start here, what could keep us from doing that? What, what could keep us from making disciples who love God and who love others? The mission is crystal clear. You cannot read the New Testament and then come away thinking, no, we have actually options here. We, as a church, we can be this or we can be that. No, we, it's, it's pretty clear. We have to be a church that is making disciples and particular types of disciples. Those who look like Jesus, those who love God, those who love others. But what would keep us from doing it? And there, there are a number of factors that, that could lead us astray from, from this mission, from living it out. One that we typically don't think about is unbelief unbelief. You can go to church and not believe in Jesus. You know this, right? Lots of people who go to church and do not believe in Jesus. They may think they believe in Jesus, but they don't. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're most likely not going to be living out the mission that he has given. So unbelief is a real reason that would keep us from living out this mission. Apathy, where you go to church because at this point, it's just something that, I mean, what else are we going to do on Sunday, you know? I can promise you, lots of other things you could be doing, all right? And I think people in the South are starting to figure that out, where it's like, you know, actually, we don't really have to go to church that much. We can, we can just stay at home, you know? You're kind of waking up. Oh, man, the rest of the country, they figured it out. Like, we, we don't have to do that, and we can still be Christians, right? And, um, but, but you become apathetic to the mission that Jesus has given us. And so you go through the motions, you participate just enough, um, in church to feel like you're, you know, still a part of it, um, but you're really just very apathetic to the mission that he's given us to make disciples, and so that could stifle disciple-making. We wouldn't do it. Comfort. Comfort. Something starts happening at your local church that you just really love. A rhythm, a style, a preference of yours is being met, and so you just get really comfortable. So then you really enjoy being a part of the community of faith. You really enjoy coming to church. You really enjoy, you know, serving in different areas. But the reason is not the fulfillment of the mission. The reason is you're comfortable now. And the moment that those comforts are stripped away, the more difficult it becomes to fulfill this mission. So comfort can be something that keeps us from fulfilling this mission. Sin. Sin, rebellion, sin can get deep in our hearts and, and keep us from fulfilling this mission. But there's, there's something else I want to draw your attention to today that I did not expect to find anything about in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is honestly rather boring. There, there's an interesting vision 
in here. But it's kind of boring. I told Avery earlier in the week, I was like, I, you know, scouring just all these commentaries, and I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, like, if, if I'm honest with you. I, I have no clue what to pull from this, because, I mean, yeah, he meets this couple at the beginning, you know, Silas and Timothy come along, and then we have the same old thing that we've seen the last few chapters in the book of Acts. Paul preaches the gospel to the Jews, they reject him, he gets upset, he leaves, there's some type of persecution, and then he starts sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, some people come to faith, and then at the end, you can just predict it, Paul's going to be kicked out of Corinth. That doesn't happen in Corinth. He isn't kicked out. He isn't persecuted. There's, there are some interesting things that happen here, but one thing that's actually not mentioned here that we have to do a little bit of uh, um, digging in another letter of Paul's, we have to infer a little bit. When Paul entered the city of Corinth, he was likely very discouraged. You see, one way the mission of our church will be slowed and possibly even paralyzed is if we become a community of discouraged people. Discouragement. Discouragement will stifle mission in a church. Discouragement will stunt spiritual growth in a Christian. We don't typically think of it this way. Looked up a few definitions of discouragement. Essentially, it's a loss of confidence or enthusiasm, dispiritedness. When Paul came to Corinth, he was likely pretty discouraged. In 1 Corinthians 2, we at least, you know, see Paul alluding to this. He talks about whenever he arrived in Corinth, how he felt really weak. And we can at least say that Paul had reasons to be discouraged. You see, Paul was likely discouraged from his experience in Athens. So, so in Acts chapter 17 at the end, he gives this phenomenal sermon amongst the philosophers in the city of Athens. But he doesn't really get a ton of response. There, aren't, there isn't just this response of faith from all these philosophers. No, instead, there are some who say, hey, come back, you know, keep talking with us. We'll, we'll hear you out on this. And then the rest of the people mocked him. So he, he didn't see just an abundance of conversions. There were some people who believed, but there were probably so few. That's why we're given names at the end of Acts chapter 17. He was mocked in Athens, but he was also likely discouraged by the continual rejection from the Jews and the revulsion. They hated him. You see what it says in verse 6 of chapter 18 is he has been sharing the gospel with, with the Jews and when they opposed him and reviled him. Pa Paul, you know, once again, Luke is highlighting this, that his own people hate him, revile him, reject him. In most of the cities that Paul has visited so far, his own people have slandered him, or they have beaten him, or they have brought him before the governing authorities, and he's been arrested. I mean, when you know that someone hates you, reviles you, slanders you, opposes you, and rejects you, and it happens not just in one city, but every single city that you go, you think you'd be a bit discouraged? Maybe a bit. Paul was also very likely discouraged by Jewish unbelief. It's killing him. He loves his people. He loves the Jews. And he goes into their synagogues, and it makes so much sense to him. It's so abundantly clear. And he's a phenomenal teacher. And he opens the Old Testament scriptures, and he explains to them how Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. 
He's the Christ, and he shows them all these prophecies over and over and over again. And the majority of the people before him have said, get out of here. And what's breaking Paul's heart is not just the fact that they are rejecting him, but they are rejecting Jesus. Salvation is freely being offered to them. They are the ones who were heirs of the promises of God, and they are now rejecting all of those promises and their fulfillment in Jesus. How crushing must that have been for Paul as he now comes into one of the most morally bankrupt cities in the Roman world. Las Vegas would blush at Corinth and what was found there. And he has this agenda to lead people to faith in Jesus and plant churches. He is in desperate need of encouragement. He needs a dose of confidence and enthusiasm. He needs his spirit lifted. He has been emotionally and spiritually laid low by rejection and unbelief. And that's not even to mention all of the physical demands that he has now faced at the end of this second missionary journey. How can he go on in the face of so much discouragement? How can he carry out this mission in a difficult place, in a difficult season? And how can we? The potential for discouragement looms heavy over us. Now, living for Jesus and growing in Jesus is not discouraging in and of itself. But discouragement, regardless of what source it comes from, will stunt our spiritual growth. And it will stifle our missional living. And some of you may feel very discouraged today. And I don't know why. But you may feel very discouraged. You, you need to face your discouragement today. And you need to evaluate what it is doing to your life in Jesus. What's it doing? What happens when you feel discouraged? Discouragement affects us spiritually. When we're discouraged, we are more prone to sin. Our guard is down. We're more susceptible to temptation. Discouragement affects us emotionally. When we're discouraged, how does that affect us in the life of the church? We isolate. We stop participating in the community of faith. We withdraw from other people. We tend to then become those who discourage others. You know, it's hurt people, hurt people, discouraged people, discourage people. In other words, discouragement can lead us away from the very things we need to grow in Christ and live out his mission. So, so what's the solution? If discouragement really does pose a threat to our ability as a church to live on mission for Jesus, what do we need to overcome? We need encouragement. If you are discouraged, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. If you are discouraged, what you need is you need to be encouraged. And there are three forms of encouragement that we find here in Acts chapter 18. Luke shows us uh, three forms of encouragement that will help us, in the face of much discouragement, keep stubbornly living for Jesus. Keep pursuing this mission. And it comes in three forms. Here, here they are. Number one, the encouragement of God's people. Number two, the encouragement of God's presence. And very Baptist, here we go, the encouragement of God's power. So the encouragement of God's people, presence, and power. We see all three of these in this passage. Let's, let's look at them one by one. So first, this morning, if you are discouraged, you need encouragement from God's people. 
So if you look, the first, first couple verses here, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. And they were tent makers by trade. So Paul, he arrives here in the city of Corinth, as I said, a very large city in the Roman Empire, um, a, a city where, I mean, you would not want to take your kids to the city of Corinth. It was a rough, rough place. Um, but again, Paul likely wanted to go to Corinth because not only uh, is it a port city, but it's also a very large city where a lot of trade happens, where a lot of people come to and fro. And so it would be a wonderful place for churches to be planted for the gospel to be uh, a part of. So he wants to go to the city. Um, what we see here as Paul comes into the city is he receives encouragement from two sets of people, two different sets of people. And we see from these people that two types of relationships within the church can bring us deep encouragement. So two types of relationships. First is what we see from Aquila and Priscilla, the encouragement of friendship. All right, so when, first, uh, when Paul first arrived here in Corinth, we learned that he meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They're, they're a married couple. They had recently moved to Corinth from Rome, and, and we learned that the reason that that happened is because the, the emperor Claudius, he had actually sent out this decree that all the Jews in Rome had to leave. And it's so interesting to me why that's the case. We're not going to get into it too much, and I'd encourage you to look up this history. The reason that that happened is because the gospel had already reached the city of Rome. And so, so the news that Jesus was the Messiah was spreading all over the city. And it was causing the Jews, as they had in other places, to, to rebel against this and to, to contend harshly against these Christians. And there was an uproar in the city. And the emperor of Rome responded to that by casting out all of the Jews from the city. So at the time, and there are historical documents that say because of the Christos, that because of the turmoil that, that centered around who Jesus was, he had, like the emperor had to get rid of these Jews. Well, um, uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they were some of these refugees that had to settle in other places, and they settled in Corinth. Now, we also learn that the reason that Paul went to see Aquila and Priscilla is not just because they were believers and not just because they were, they, uh, Aquila especially was a Jew. Um, there was something else that he had in common with them. And I just think it's so cool. Like Paul, Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. They, they were leather workers. They worked with leather. They, they had the same occupation. They had the same talents. They had the same abilities. And so uh, what we see here is an important friendship forming. Paul stays with them. He lives with them in their home. He works with them in their business. Paul ends up mentioning Aquila and Priscilla multiple times in some of his letters that we find in the New Testament. They were, they were dear friends of his. This, this couple meant a lot to Paul, and I think it's important for us to notice that one of the first things that Paul receives in most likely a discouraged state is friendship. Friendship. C.S. Lewis, he's written a lot about friendship. There's a book I would encourage you to get if you, if you want to read more about that. It's called The Four Loves. And uh, in that book, um, he, writes, he writes this. It's, it's just an interesting thing to say about friendship. He says... Friendship is unnecessary, which seems to disprove what I'm trying to contend for here. But he says, friendship is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, it has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. 
So, so Lewis is saying you don't need friendship in order you know, to, to live like the way that you need water and the way that you need food. You can be lonely for the rest of your life and your body will still function. You will, you will survive. But friendship gives value to our survival. It brings beauty and goodness to our lives. And, and friendship, is, it's, it's like a soothing balm of comfort in a season of discouragement. And, and it is a boost out of a season of discouragement. Friendship is encouraging. It gives us hope, assurance of love. It gives us courage to keep facing difficult days. And, and if, you're, if you're blanking right now, it may be because children are much better at friendship than adults. Kids are so much better at friendship than, than we are as adults. And adult men, we are the worst at friendship. We are so bad at making friends. I mean, we, we don't need any friends. We don't need anything. We're good. We, we are good on our own. Um, or maybe, maybe I'm just a loner here. Maybe you guys are like, I don't know. I got plenty of friends. Um, but typically, men are not great at friendship. Children are awesome at friendship. And that's because they know, and you remember when you were growing up, you can do or face anything with a friend. You can do anything with a friend. You can face anything with a friend, something that you're terrified to do, something that you're scared of, even if it's something as simple as riding a bus home. You know, uh, our, our oldest son, Jude, he started riding a bus home, and he was a little bit nervous about it, and now he, he doesn't worry about it at all. You know why? He has a friend. He has a friend. Friendship is powerful. You can face a hard class, a frustrating teacher, a bully. Friendship is, is one of the most empowering and encouraging things in the world. So when Paul comes to Corinth alone, the Lord provided him with exactly what he needed. Friends. I mean, just imagine this ordinary joy that Paul likely experienced early on in the city of Corinth. After all of his difficult ministry, before his first convert in the city of Corinth, before his first day in a synagogue, before the hardship of ministry comes, he's living with Aquila and Priscilla. They wake up each morning, I don't know what they ate for breakfast. They'd eat some breakfast. They'd get dressed and get ready. They'd go to work together. They'd go to work together. I don't know what tent makers did. I mean, I guess they made tents, you know, but I mean, he's a leather worker. And he would work, and they would work. And you can imagine them just sharing, sharing tips and techniques. And, oh, yeah, no, 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 there's a, there's a faster way to do that. There's a better way. And just sitting and laughing together and enjoying. And they go on their lunch break. Paul needed this. He needed this friendship, this refreshing moment. If you could see them, you could see them smiling. You can see them laughing as they're working with their hands in this business. You and I need friends in the church. When we are discouraged, if you are discouraged right now, you need friends. Now, here, here's the beauty of it. When you become a believer, when you become a believer, you are adopted into a family. And in the same way, when you were born into your family, you have no choice with that, right? If you have brothers and sisters, they're your brothers and sisters whether you want them to be or not. It, it really doesn't matter. When you uh, join a local church, we are your brothers and sisters whether you want us to be or not. It's just, it, it's the way that it works. It's, if, you don't, if you don't want to be in the family of God and you're a believer in Jesus, tough luck because you are. However, you don't have to have friends. And that's not automatic. That's something you have to work for. That's something you have to to plan for in the same way that my brother is my brother no matter what my brother doesn't have to be my friend my brother is my friend because because we pursue that we cultivate that those relationships have to be built and we each 
need them. In the church, we are accepted and loved and welcomed irrespective of our past behaviors, our cultural background, or our current social status. This is a place, then, where true friends can be made. But this friendship does have to be intentionally pursued. It has to be carefully cultivated. I want you to see the blessing of friendship, and I want you to pursue it with one another because it is one of the most encouraging things that will be a part of your life. So if you have friends here, thank the Lord for your friends. If you don't have friends here, then I would encourage you to start pursuing friendship. Okay, so, so the encouragement of friendship... But God's people encourage us in another way, too, and they encourage Paul in another way. And it's the encouragement of gospel partners. So, so Paul had friends here in Corinth, but he also had gospel partners. And, and this comes in, in this different set of people, Silas and Timothy. So look with me at verse 5. After we see in verse 4 that Paul has been going to the Sabbath, or going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks of Jesus, we see in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. All right, so when Paul's ministry began in the city of Corinth, he had a very specific rhythm. And, and you, you kind of see this here, and, and it shifts. So at first, he is spending his weekdays with Aquila and Priscilla working with leather. He's working in their business, and then on the weekends, when the Sabbath would come, he would go and he would go to the synagogue and he would share the gospel in those places. But then Monday would roll back around, and boom, he'd be right back at work with Aquila and Priscilla. And that goes on until verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrive. And when Silas and Timothy arrive, all we're told is that Paul was occupied with the word. Now, this can't mean that Paul, because Silas and Timothy now arrived, that now he's taking the, the gospel seriously, or now he's studying the scriptures seriously. No, it means that now he is spending the majority of his time in the word of God and ministering to other people, meaning that he no longer needed to work with Aquila and Priscilla, which shows us that there were two levels of support that came with Silas and Timothy. First, these partners in the gospel, Silas and Timothy, arrive... And now Paul does not have to minister by himself. He's not alone. And when you're alone doing ministry, there are a limited number of things that you can do. When you have partners in gospel ministry, it, 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 it's exponentially increased what you are able to do for the glory of God. And so he has his support from Silas and Timothy, just their presence. Now they're all able to share the gospel together. But second, what is also likely true is that Paul likely received a financial gift from the churches in Macedonia. So now he doesn't have to work to support himself. He is supported by these churches so he can occupy himself with the word to teach both believers and unbelievers. And, and here's the point to draw from this. When you are discouraged, you need to know that people in this church are with you in the mission to make disciples who love God and love others. You are not alone. We are called to be partners in the gospel together. We are called to support one another as we grow in the likeness of Jesus and as we live out his purposes for us. We are called to help one another become people who love God and who love others. That's why it's so important to build relationships here, not only for the purpose of friendship, but for the purpose of having someone else here who is keeping you on track. Remember, remember, 
It's easy for us to, to get lost. Remember, here's what we're after. To love God more, to love other people more, to make more disciples. That's what we're after here. We need that. We need to be able to do it together. So, be encouraged by God's people. And if I had to extend one single pastoral call from you based on the friendship and the gospel partnership that we see from Paul here, it would be this. Be an encourager. The point is, relationships in the church deeply encourage other people, but not just for their own sake. When you have relationships with other people, if you are a discouraging person, you're not encouraging them just by being a friend to them, that you're actually not a great friend. I, I would encourage you to be an encourager. How, how amazing would it be if when people think about encouragement in this church, they think about you? And I'll go ahead, since he's not here, he won't blush, and, and say uh, that Philip Grissom, one of our elders, is one of the most encouraging people I have ever met. He, he, he texts me on a regular basis, and at the end of every single message, after he has already sent me so many affirming, so many encouraging words, at the end of it, he says, stay encouraged. Do you, do you understand how empowering that is? I mean, it's not like he's speaking things into existence or, or there's any kind of mystical thing from the text message to my heart. But, you know, uh, there's a spiritual element to this. When I read his words, stay encouraged or be encouraged, guess what? It kind of works. <laughs> like, I kind of am immediately lifted up in heart. I would encourage you to encourage others in our church. It really doesn't take a skill set. To have a ministry of encouragement in this church, it takes effort. It just takes effort, you know? You don't have to be skilled. It's like building something from Ikea. You know how it is. You don't, you're, you're not skilled. Um, <laughs> I'm not skilled, but you, you know, you can read the instructions. It just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It's, it, it can be really frustrating at times, you know? You don't always get the perfect result, but however imperfectly, at the end, we have built something, right? You build one another up, however imperfectly, when you encourage each other. So do that. Um, and I can promise you, if you set out from today moving forward to be an encourager our church will be a healthier and happier place it will happen so if you're discouraged you need god's people but more than god's people you you also need god's presence so if you're discouraged you need not only the encouragement of god's people but you need the encouragement of god's presence now this is the cool part of this passage look look down with me in verse 9 of of acts 18 And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And then we read the effect, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Okay, so uh, Paul has kind of already experienced this roller coaster. Uh, ministry in, in Corinth. He has been in the synagogue. He shares the gospel. The Jews reject him. And so he says, hey, the blood is on your head. I'm out of here. I, I am innocent of you, and I'm going to the Gentiles. And then Paul goes and he shares the gospel with the Gentiles, and, and there are people who come to faith. 
And then the Jews later, they, they actually want to drag him out and they bring him before the, the Roman governing authorities. It's a roller coaster. There's belief, there's rejection, uh, there's, there's welcome, there's love, there's hatred. It, it is an absolute roller coaster here in Corinth. And you can imagine how exhausting that would be. And he'd probably be like, look, I have gotten my fill of the city of Corinth. I cannot stand this. I, why is that guy standing on his head over here in the nude? I don't understand. Corinth was a weird place, y'all. And so Paul is probably absolutely exhausted, ready to go, and he receives this vision where the Lord Jesus himself comes to him and tells him five things. He says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. And every single thing that Jesus says in this vision is rooted in this one simple word of assurance, I am with you. This, this phrase here, don't be afraid for I am with you, it's a common and powerful word of encouragement that the Lord has given to his servants throughout the centuries. Moses is called by the Lord to go before Pharaoh, and God tells him, do not be afraid. Why? Because I will be with you. When Joshua took over as the leader of God's people from Moses, the Lord, he tells him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then when Jeremiah, much later, is given this holy but terrible task of preaching judgment against God's people, Jeremiah protests. He said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. He's trying to find his way out, but the Lord encouraged his soul. He said, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then he says it. Do not be afraid of them. Why? For I am with you to deliver you. In each of these situations, the command is go. Fulfill the mission that I have given. And do not be afraid. Because the Lord your God is with you. You see, God's presence is power. To obey the command, do not fear. You, you, may, you may feel afraid right now. You may feel very discouraged. And it may be stifling your growth as a Christian. It may be stifling your, your work here at the church to, to fulfill the mission that we have been given by Jesus himself. You may feel like the world is against you. You may feel like your friends have turned into enemies and that life is really not going as planned. But just as certain as the presence of disappointment and discouragement are in your life, so is the presence of God. So do not lose heart. Do not be afraid. Do not stop pursuing Jesus. Do not stop working to help other people here look more like Jesus. Because even in our loneliest moments of discouragement and despair, God is with us. He is on our side. Now, that's easy to say, but if you're like me and you read that, the first thing I thought was, Lord, I really want to believe that. I want to believe that you are with me wherever I go and that you're with me right now. But I feel like if that was true, if that was true that you were with me, I wouldn't feel so discouraged. So what gives? 
How can I be so discouraged? And then you can go in either direction where you, you're, you're prone to unbelief and you're like, well, maybe you're not with me. Or on the other hand, you're like, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. If I'm so discouraged, maybe I'm not a Christian. And this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. I want you to see this. The gospel of Jesus Christ guarantees that God is with us, whether we feel his presence or not. God's presence with us, him being on our side, does not depend on our faithfulness or on our spiritual health. His presence with us. Our perception of that, it does, it does sort of depend on our spiritual health, where we are in the Lord. Because Jesus died and rose again, and through our faith in him, whether that faith is really strong or really weak, we have been reconciled to God. We have been united to Jesus. We have been adopted by God. We are in, and we are his. The assurance of God's presence is found not in our ability to perceive or feel. The assurance of God's presence does not hang on your spiritual performance. No. The assurance of God's presence depends on Jesus. If he was who he said he was, if he did what the scriptures say he did, and you believe in him, God is with you, whether you feel it or not. From now and throughout all eternity, the Lord your God will be with you. Jesus has secured this for you through his life, death, and resurrection. So we can face anything. We can face anything with courage and hope and strength. We can stay on mission as a church when we have every reason to stop. Why? Because God is with us. If you're discouraged today, you can still be a blessing to someone else in this church. Why? Because God is with you. Paul would later write to the church at Rome, if God is for us, who can be against us? So if you're discouraged this morning, you need the encouragement that God is with you. One last thing. If you are discouraged you need the encouragement of God's power. Now, this, this is where it's a little interesting. So, so after, after Paul decides he's going to stay a year and six months, we're, we're told that the Jews, the Jewish leaders especially, tried to bring Paul before the tribunal. They're bringing him before this governing authority, um, and they're accusing him of, of teaching this new religion that is contrary to Roman law. Essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Paul in a heap of trouble. They're trying to get rid of this man, and they're trying to do it in a legal way. And so what happens is they, they bring Paul before Gallio, who is the proconsul of the region. And whenever he's brought before them, they're like, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul's about to defend himself, but the ruler doesn't let that happen. Gallio, he responds and he says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And that feels like the most random thing to include here. Why is this so important? Is it just an interesting historical tidbit? Here's why it's important. Go back to the vision. Go back to, to verse 9. In this vision, the Lord is speaking to Paul. Jesus looks at Paul and he says, 
to him, don't be afraid, keep speaking, don't be silent. Why? For I am with you. And then he says something else to him. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. Now here's why it's important to see that in connection with what happened with Gallio. When the Jews presented Paul before this Roman leader, the Roman leader could have agreed with the Jews and said, you know what, you're exactly right. The Romans have, have given permission to the Jews to worship their God as they please, but no one else has that permission, and you're telling me this is different. So yes, it is different. We are going to punish him. Paul was on the verge of not only being harmed, but being put in prison, possibly killed. And it doesn't happen. You know why that didn't happen? Because Jesus promised Paul that while he's in Corinth, no harm will come to him. There will be no attack to harm him. Here's why this is powerful and why this would have deeply encouraged Paul. He got to see the power of God on display. It's one thing for God to make a promise. It's another thing for God to fulfill that promise. When you get to see God fulfill his promises, it is deeply encouraging to your soul and you need to see it. Another thing we see here, you see, you saw, you see what Jesus said at the very end of the vision? He said, I need you to stay here. Why? I have many people who are in this city. These people in this city, some of them are my people. And what's really interesting about that is this comes after we see these conversions. Paul has experienced the saving power of God. The saving power of God. And when you experience the saving power of God, it is deeply encouraging to your soul. So one thing I would encourage you to do, if you are discouraged... If you are discouraged today, find a way to share the gospel with someone else. Find a way to encourage another believer in the gospel. If you don't have the energy to do that, get out a journal and start thinking and reflecting on all the ways that God has been working in your life over the past few months. And when you start to see before your eyes how God is moving, and working powerfully to save people, to change people, to change you, it will deeply encourage your heart. Sometimes in, on my darkest days, and, and on my darkest days in, in the job that I have, some, some of you guys, you're like, you know, if you have a really hard week at work, you're like, you know, I got to find something else to do. I got to find a new job. The way it works for me and most pastors that I know, when we have those moments, we're not thinking like, oh man, let's get out. Let's go find another church. We're like, let's get away from ministry altogether. I don't know that we can do this. I, 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 don't, I, just, I just don't know. When that feeling starts to creep in, do you know what I do? I think about you. I think about the stories that I know and the, the, the ways that God has worked in your lives. I, I think about those of you that I have baptized. I've seen you come to saving faith. I think about those of, those of you who have, have been on the verge of a, a, a big moment of despair and seen the Lord inject life and energy. I, I've seen how the Lord has sustained this church through so much turmoil. <laughs> it gives me so much encouragement. My heart is lifted up because of the power of God that I see on display. Be encouraged by the power of God. Now, after all of this encouragement that Paul receives, the once dejected apostle ends up staying in this morally bankrupt city of Corinth for a year and a half. 
And look, he ends up having all kinds of problems with this church. You just read 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and there are all kinds of problems. But he stays that long. Discouragement is a powerful force, but it is no match for the encouragement of God's people and his presence and his power. Paul would later write these words to, to the people that he stayed with to evangelize and teach for so long. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This was the perspective that Paul developed for himself, so he was able to labor on. This is how we labor on and fulfill this mission to make disciples in this church and in this city and to all nations. Disciples who love God and others. And if you're discouraged, receive the encouragement from the Lord and pursue it in one another as we look for his power in our midst. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful.